Are there really any benefits to e-cigarettes? Has the Zika virus changed? What can happen if you get a tattoo? And does health literacy affect post-operative outcomes? That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins, posted on October 6th, 2017. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, and dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I'm going to date myself and show just how tattoo-averse I am. I'd like to turn first to Annals of Internal Medicine. This is a single report, a case report, of a really kind of unusual outcome relative to someone getting a tattoo. This is a patient that was reported from Australia. You may or may not be aware that if you look at Australians between the ages of 16 to 64, about one in seven has a tattoo. The thing that's unusual about this particular case is we know that tattoos are associated with infectious disease if they're not done properly. People can get a skin reaction to some of the dyes, but the unusual thing about this particular patient was she had had a tattoo placed on her back about 15 years previously, and noticed that she had lymph nodes in her armpits and went to see her physician. And they did scans for all the world. It looked like she had lymphoma. So they did a little biopsy and were unable to obtain enough tissue, so they took out one of the lymph nodes. And what they discovered was what they had was a reactive lymph node. It was a lymph node that had a bunch of black ink in it, reaction to the tattoo ink, but no evidence of cancer. This is 15 years after the tattoo was placed. When they went back and looked at the literature, there was a case report of somebody that presented with similar findings. It was thought to be cancer 30 years after their tattoo, and oftentimes people are mistaken for having melanoma. The dark or pigmented ink in the lymph node can simulate melanoma. So for people that have had tattoos, not only can there be an immediate reaction, but one even 15 to 30 years after the tattoo was applied. Wow, and this along with all the other things that we can see in direct observation by the gravity and its impact as somebody ages on the way a tattoo looks. As I said already, guys, this is a clear indication of my age because I'm so tattoo averse, but what does this tell us about some of the inks that are used in these particular things? These lymph nodes were reacting to the black ink, usually the red ink that causes most of the problems. But every individual is a little bit different. The nice news for this individual is this 30-year-old thought she had cancer. And what she discovered was it was nothing more than just a reaction to the tattoo ink. So maybe something that there needs to be a high index of suspicion in someone who's tattooed if melanoma is suspected or even lymphoma. Absolutely. Let's turn from here then to the journal Science. We don't go there that often. But gosh, this week there's a study relative to mutations in the Zika virus. We've known about the Zika virus since 1947, and that's when it was discovered in a monkey in the Zika forest in Uganda. And it's been known to cause mild disease, but over the last two or three years, there's been a lot of press about the fact that pregnant women who get infected with the Zika virus can deliver children that have brain abnormalities, small brains, small heads, microcephaly, and behavioral problems and learning disabilities. These have seemed to have popped up over the last two or three years. So what these investigators did was they looked at a virus that was obtained in 2010 and compared it to virus that has infected people more recently. And when they injected the 2010 virus and the more recent ones into mice, they noticed that the more recent ones caused more injury to nerve cells. And if they injected into embryonic mice, they were more likely to have small brains and brain malformation. So then they said, well, gosh, it looks like the recent Zika virus is somehow different. So they went back and they found out that there were several different mutations. In a laboratory model, they reproduced these 
single nucleotide gene abnormalities. And when they did, they were able to get a virus similar to the ones that are more recent. And in fact, they do attack nerve cells more avidly than the old virus. It suggests that this genetic mutation, at least in the mice model, may explain why humans are more likely to have nerve problems now than they were 10 or 15 years ago with the same infection. Of course, we're not surprised by the fact that viruses are mutating all the time. In fact, they're sort of mutation machines in some respects. And then they have that immediate environmental pressure that selects for some of these advantageous qualities. So what would be the advantage to the virus to attack nerve cells? These particular abnormalities make the virus more likely to proliferate and to cause death of these nerve cells. There's a lot of controversy over the study because it was done in mice, but still I think it at least gives a background of a possibility of why it may be causing more brain abnormalities than previously noted. Let's turn from here to something more practical. In JAMA surgery, a look at health literacy among patients and how that impacts on their outcomes following surgery. And this is a unique study because it looks at health literacy with regard to surgical outcomes. Most of the previous studies have looked at health literacy with regard to chronic disease management for things like diabetes, for example, or hypertension. And we know people that have low health literacy are less likely to be compliant with their medications, are more likely to have complications related to their disease, and are more likely to be admitted to the hospital. Does the same thing hold for surgical patients? In this study, conducted primarily by a single-site institution, they looked at individuals that had undergone major abdominal surgery. Each of these individuals had their health literacy assessed by just asking three simple questions. And then they tried to see their outcome after surgery. Was it tied to their health literacy? And what they found is that although people with poor health literacy were more likely to stay in the hospital an extra day after their surgery, there was no correlation between readmission to the hospital over the next one to three months. So poor health literacy seems to affect chronic disease management, but it may not have as much of an influence in post-operative patients. I think it's really important for us to define where health literacy is a risk factor. And so I actually am glad that this study shows that hmm, maybe not as far as having impacts on surgical outcomes. I'm not sure that it says to me, though, that we still don't need to strive to make sure that people really understand what's going to be happening and what the consequences are and what resources are available to them after they have an operation. Your point's well taken, Elizabeth, and if we provide that information, it may shorten their hospital stay, for example. That may have been one reason why they had to stay in the hospital a day longer to work all that out. Now, the other caveat about this particular study was it was conducted amongst Vanderbilt patients, and only 7% had really poor health literacy and 20% low health literacy. So it may not represent the population that we're seeing across the United States. And furthermore, very few of these were minority patients as well. So this is a foundational study, but we need to follow up with other studies that are more representative of our demographic. Okay. Finally, let's go across the pond to something that is really quite interesting. And we've talked about it so many times. This is a study saying if all the smokers in the U.S. switched to e-cigarettes, it would result in huge cost savings. So Elizabeth, I appreciate you picking this one because this is an approach that I haven't really thought of. We've talked before about how the use of e-cigarettes is thought to increase the use of tobacco products subsequently because many young individuals are advancing from e-cigarettes 
to normal cigarettes. Furthermore, in many individuals, e-cigarettes haven't replaced cigarettes. They've just supplemented them. These authors took a different approach. They noted that two-thirds of long-term smokers will ultimately die of a smoking attributable disease. Think about that for a second. Anything else in the U.S., if two-thirds of individuals who consume something were to die of it, we'd completely ban it. But we haven't done that with cigarettes. Well, these authors said, well, let's say we actually got to that point. We said we're willing to ban cigarettes and replace them with e-cigarettes. So people still had exposure to nicotine, but not all the harmful products with smoking. What would be the results of that? And so they took what was called an optimistic approach. The replacement of cigarettes by e-cigarettes over a 10-year period would yield 6.6 .6 million fewer premature deaths and 87 million fewer life years lost. If you take the most pessimistic approach, you still avert 1.6 million premature deaths and avert 21 million fewer life years lost. So regardless of how you look at it, if we were actually to get to the point where we'd said, listen, we're going to ban cigarettes and replace them with e-cigarettes, it looks like they're less harmful over a 10-year period. Right. But I don't think, I'm sorry to throw a little fly into the ointment here, that we have sufficient data relative to the dangers, the long-term dangers of e-cigarettes at this point. And I don't think anybody would dispute that. On the flip side, I think most people would agree that smoking, smoke itself, carries a greater risk than e-cigarettes. Now, how to specifically to quantify that over the long term? Well, we don't have long-term results with e-cigarettes yet, but I think most individuals would agree that they're probably safer. Now, they're only safer if they completely replace cigarettes, not if they're used to supplement cigarettes, by the way. I thought we had discussed, or at least I have done a story on some of the propellants that are in the vapor, and there were similarities with that popcorn situation where those people all developed a lung disease secondary to exposure in a factory when they made microwave popcorn. I mean, I think that there's stuff we still don't know about this. And so this wholehearted approach of like, hey, let's all switch to e-cigarettes, I'm not sure we can embrace that necessarily. No, and I applaud the authors for taking what is called an optimistic and pessimistic approach, trying to draw boundaries upon those people that say, gosh, there are very little harms, to those that say, yes, there are significant harms. I agree with you. I think this is a provocative paper at best. The most provocative thing is to actually think we could actually ban cigarette smoking in the United States. I love that idea. On that note, that's the one I'm going to talk about this week on the blog. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all live well.